You can go ahead and take a seat. Our uh, sermon text for this evening comes from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16 through 27. It reads like this. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will... I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Uh, that I might, excuse me, those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Here ends the reading of God's word. Father, I pray, as we have just heard this word, that you would now take it and apply it to our hearts and our minds, that we might have a sense of seriousness about what we hear here in this text. We might find ourselves identifying with the apostle who wrote it and wanting to have the same mentality ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, welcome. Uh, It is good to be here with you tonight on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, I know many people are gone at Super Bowl parties already, so thank you for those of you who came out to worship before uh, you uh, go out for whatever festivities you might have planned tonight. Uh, we just, as a reminder, we are we do have food, uh, lots of food in the fellowship hall after the service for you to eat that Cheney is probably going to put in the oven right now. Um, yes, uh, and there's all sorts of, like, it's all good stuff. It's super healthy and gluten-free well, okay, so maybe there is some gluten-free products, not healthy. None of it is healthy, none of it, but it's all tasty. It's appropriate for the Super Bowl. So uh, if you can stick around after for a little while, I don't think we're planning on sticking around for the whole game, but, you know, just for a little wild snack, you're more than welcome to it. We'd be happy you're here. So, uh, or be happy for you to stay, right, stay here. All right, let's get into the text tonight. So uh, how many of you have heard the phrase, if it saves just one life, it's worth it? Just show of hands. If it saves just one life, it is worth it. And the it can be any number of things that people are talking about. But I remember a time where I heard that phrase a number of years ago in a very specific, um, a very specific uh, problem that was happening. It was carried on live TV all over the place. This happened back in October of 1987. So before many of you were born, I was nine years old uh, at the time. It happened at 9.30 a.m. on October 14th. An 18-month-old toddler named Jessica McClure fell into a well in Texas. 
And, I mean, I don't exactly know how she fell into the well in Texas. I don't exactly know what happened. But all I know is that she fell really deep down into the well and no one could reach her. And for whatever reason, this caught fire with news crews around the country. I mean, you've got to remember, this is before there was 24-hour cable news. This is before you had constant, like, alerts, you know, on the bottom of your screen, making you afraid of everything all the time. Like, this was, this was, and so to have all the major networks covering a news story was a big deal, and they were all covering it. They were fascinated with the rescue or the attempted salvation of this little baby stuck down in the well. And sure enough, eventually, to clear out the dirt, a backhoe was brought in, and that didn't work. And then multiple people started digging by hand, and that still didn't work. Oil companies from around the country loaned them specially designed digging tools to help them. And hour after hour after hour went by. Live coverage is happening. It's constant. 58 hours with this 18-month-old little girl in the well goes by. Multiple people from all over the country by this time are trying with everything they got to try and save this little girl. And finally, after all the blood, sweat, dirt, and tears, amazingly, they reached little Jessica 58 hours. And she was fine. No, no problem. She was good. They had rescued her from the bottom of the well. And, and I know for a fact that when someone was asked in an interview after that event, with all the manpower, all the resources that were given, all the money that was spent, I know, somebody said, well, if it saved one life, it was all worth it. I wonder if we believe the same thing uh, in regard to other people's spiritual lives. What is it worth to us to see someone that we love rescued from great pain or even death? And if you can think in your mind's eye about uh, somebody that you care deeply about being in a situation of real harm or real danger, what lengths are you willing to go to to help them, to save them? And I think about my, if, you know, I have three, three sons, my little guy, Lincoln, who's five, but is very quickly turning six. He tells me every day right now, turning six in uh, about three weeks, and he's got a list of things that he wants for his birthday, which he's not going to get, but he'll get some. Um, but my, he still doesn't understand, like, how streets work, you know, he just doesn't, uh, the logic is not formed there, so I said this, like... Just walk right out in the street and not be cognizant of who's coming where and who's going. Um, and if that was to happen, thank God it hasn't. But if it was to happen in a way where a car was to come towards him and he was to walk right out into the street, I assure you, my instinctive uh, mode, my instinctive action, would be to jump into the street to save him. Why? Why would I risk my life and limb? For someone else. Why would I go through so much? Well, it's because I love them, right? It's because I care for them. And when you love someone, well then, 
no matter what it costs to save one life, it's worth it, right? I think that's the point Paul is making in our passage tonight about his preaching, about his ministry. He's talking about sort of like his method of why he is so passionate about going everywhere to preach the gospel, to share the message of Jesus Christ. Because in his mind, eternal consequences are at stake. Heaven and hell are at stake. People are walking in darkness and are hurting and are uh, in bondage to addictions and have all sorts of problems. And Paul looks around the world and says, I've got the, I've got the answer. I've got the thing that can help you. I've got, not just help you, say, rescue you. I've got it. It's worth it. Whatever I have to do, it's worth it. And so in other parts of his life, in other letters, you'll see him detail. Like, I, I was stoned this many times. I almost died this many times. I was shipwrecked. I was bitten by snakes. He goes through this long, tawdry list of horrible things. And he, again, why? If it, if it saves one life, it was worth it. It's his mindset. So what are the kinds of things that one might be called to sacrifice for the sake of the other, for the sake of bringing this saving message to another person. Well, from our text, it looks like from verses 16 through 18, first of all, it looks like it's worth sacrificing money. Now, that might not be evident to you when you first read the text, but um, in our passage's context, Paul is contrasting himself with other leaders in the church. And as he does this, he notes that they take a salary from their ministry. They take a salary. So in other words, like the church takes an offering and then part of that offering goes to support the pastor and his family. Paul being a pastor certainly has the right to do that. But in verse 18, he makes this statement. He says he's decided instead to quote, verse 18, present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. In other words, he has the right to take a salary if he wants to as a pastor, but he's chosen not to. And the reason why is because he doesn't ever want anybody to see what he's doing as motivated by a desire to get rich, by a desire for money. It's his own personal conviction. He doesn't say that everybody has to do that, but it's his own, per- it's his own conviction. He doesn't want that to be a hindrance to anybody listening to what he says. So he says, I'm going to do it for free. And then what he did on the side is he actually made tents, made tents for them. But the point in saying this, I mean, most of us are not going to be in a position to do what Paul does, to be able to say, you know what? No, keep the money. I don't need any money. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and do everything in my life for free. We, we can't do that, most of us. But I think the point that we can apply here is that just as Paul is willing to sacrifice income and sacrifice money for the sake of preaching and serving others, so too the Christian is called to sacrifice financially as well. It's a Christian virtue to cultivate generosity. Indeed, it is because of the financial sacrifice of so many from around, literally, guys from around the world, people give to our church. From all over the world. We would not exist. We couldn't do what we do. We couldn't begin. I mean, we're just starting up. We couldn't be here if it wasn't for the sacrificial giving of so, so many. You know, just last week, a uh, friend of mine, pastor of a church, uh, called me up from middle of the country. I don't want to 
give away too much. I don't want him to feel uncomfortable at all. But middle of the country called me up. He said, um, hey, I just want you to know, um, my church is going to be sending your church $20,000 a year for the next three years to help support your ministry. Amazing, amazing sacrificial generosity. I mean, I was on the phone getting like all Pentecostal, you know, when he told me, I was like, oh, there we go, yeah, you know, I was jumping around. Um, this, is, this is the reality uh, with our partner church, Hillside, that we're going to be visiting next Sunday morning. Uh, they are, they have given us, they're giving us so much and sacrificing so much to help this church get off the ground. Why? So that we can share the gospel, the same message Paul shared with as many people as possible here in New York City. They believe in our mission. They believe that God has called us to bring this gospel to this place so that some might be saved, as Paul puts it. I've seen illustrations on both sides of this of somebody who is, what it looks like for somebody to be generous and what that results in and what it looks like for somebody to hold on, to hoard. And I'll tell you, I mean, I, I'm, I don't have many opportunities like this now, but before I was the planter of this church, I had many opportunities to stand by the bedside of people that were dying. And it's pretty remarkable to see what happens um, when somebody, uh, when, in regard to money and family matters, as someone in the family dies. It oftentimes becomes a very problematic issue. And, uh, and at the same time, I can tell you when people have lived generously and unafraid to just kind of give away whatever they have as much as they can, I, the only way I can describe it is just there's a freedom to these people. There's a freedom to those who live in generosity. I had a, in, in my church in uh, Southern California, there was a guy who attended there uh, who was, uh, he was developmentally uh, challenged, but he was pretty high functioning. He was able to hold down, a, he was a young adult, he was able to hold down a job as a pizza delivery driver. And every time during his shift, um, he was pretty local, he would uh, stop in after he was done with his shift uh, to the church and pull out all the money that he had gotten from tips. And he would separate 10% of that money and put it in an envelope to put in the offering. And he wanted to make sure we had it then. And I remember saying, you know, like, some do this all the time. Like, why, why do it now? Why not just wait till Sunday? He says, because that's not my money. And if I wait till Sunday, it might be my money. I might spend it. He just didn't want even, I don't even want to have it near me or else I'm just like, ah, I'll just, I'll spend it. But that guy, I mean, there was such freedom with it. There was such joy in it. And that's the way it can be and that's the way it was for Paul. You don't ever hear him regretting. You don't ever hear him lamenting the fact that he didn't take a salary. You know, there's no secret lost letter of Paul where Paul's like, oh, you know, I really got a raw deal on that one. I should have rethought that one. It doesn't happen. And I will tell you, for those who do sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom of God financially, it doesn't happen to them either. They don't regret it. 
Don't regret it. So in order to save some, it's worth the sacrifice of our time and treasure. Um, But then Paul goes on to say also that it's worth the sacrifice of our comforts. And I really wish he didn't because I don't like to give up my comfort. But this is the way he puts it in verse 19. Uh, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Does it really have to be all, Paul? Does it really have to be all that 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 you're being a servant to? Because I can think of some people in that word all that I don't feel like serving. But why does he do it? That I might win more of them. Continue on me, verse 20. Gives examples to the Jews. I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. Wants to clarify, I'm not under the law. I don't have to. But, I, but for the sake of those who are under it, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll join up with them. Um, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that all, by all means I might save some. If you could narrow down in your own words what he's saying there, he's basically saying, I knew, I knew my audience. And wherever they were coming from, I wanted to make sure that I spoke and presented myself in such a way that they could understand the message clearly. I wanted to come at them in such a way that nothing I did or said would present any sort of stumbling block in their way to getting to the person of Jesus. Um, This is really what missionaries have done throughout history. In in our denomination, in our network of churches, it's a pretty small network around uh, the world, but especially in America, it's pretty small. Uh, We've sent out missionaries to China and Taiwan and Japan and and, uh, Africa for 100 years or so. If you look back at the early pictures of our missionaries, you'll see people that were raised in uh, the States here that... uh, are dressed in the garb completely of, let's say, China, where they were going. Or if they were going to uh, a tribe in Africa, they dressed exactly like the tribe dressed in Africa. Now, these were people, I mean, and when they went over there, they didn't go over there like, you know, with food that they had had here. They ate whatever food the people were eating there. Why did they do that? Why did they dress that way? And why did they eat the food that they were offered there? And, and, you know, why? Because they wanted to make sure that these people they were speaking to could hear them clearly and wouldn't stumble over any of the differences that could potentially be there. You see Paul do this throughout his ministry in a number of spots. If you want to, you can look it up later. I won't go over it now for the sake of time. But Acts chapter 17 Paul does this where he considers he's speaking to a bunch of Greeks and he's like, okay, since I'm speaking to Greeks, I'm going to speak differently here than I speak to people in the synagogue. When I speak to people in the synagogue, I talk about the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. But these Greeks, they don't have any clue about the Old Testament. So what I'll talk to them about, I'll mention a couple of their poets. I'll mention a couple of their philosophers. I'll mention their statuary. That's how I'll connect with them. He, he does it differently. So the principle here is is you connect, you sacrifice your own comforts, your own pleasures, your own desires for the sake of the other's comforts. What would it be like if we as a church in this city took 
that same posture with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers that we interact with on a daily basis. If it, instead of going out uh, to take what we can get from this city, and there's a lot. What if we went out with a posture that said, what can I give to this city? What can I give to my roommates, to my neighbors, to my friends? What comforts might make it easier for my friends or neighbors to hear the gospel if I gave them up? I heard a story, I read a story on the, I don't know if you follow the Humans of New York Instagram or Facebook page. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's basically just a guy who takes pictures of random people on the street here um, and then gets, basically does like a little interview and, you know, it usually shares a quote from their story. And there's one picture he took a couple years ago, this construction worker, and, um, you know, he looks exactly like the stereotypical constru- you know, uh, construction worker, like he's got the hard hat and the whole thing. And, um, and this is what the quote said. He said, quote, both my parents were in prison while I was growing up. I've been in prison for 90, 90% of my life, mainly for drugs. But when I got out in two, 2014, there was this old lawyer in the Bronx who took an interest in me. His name was Ramon Jimenez. He's kind of like this community activist. I don't know why he cared so much. But he sat down with me and tried to map out my life. And when I tried to start selling drugs again after I got out, Ramon came out, stood on the corner with me for three days straight. And he says, quote, here's this 72-year-old dude shadowing me wherever I go, screaming at anyone who tried to walk up to me, I'm calling the cops. I was so mad. But after three days, I gave up. And I love, I love, it was such a perfect picture to me as I read this, like, here's a 72-year-old man. How much more comfortable could he be doing just about anything else at that moment? But he sees this guy who is in bondage and stuck in this lifestyle, and for whatever reason, he's just like, I'm not going to let him go back there. I'm going to sacrifice my own comfort. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to risk my life. I mean, that is a risk of life. When you yell at potential customers on the corner that I'm going to go, you know, call the cops. Like, he's literally giving up his comforts. So how does that look for us? How might it look for you? I don't know the answer to that question. To look around and see your friends and neighbors and think, man, what can I do to show them how much I really care that they meet this God who can free us. So yeah, I mean, and and we could go on about all the sacrifices that it would take, that it does take in order to reach people. And it is a heavy cost. And so in closing, I think we have to ask, what on earth can motivate us to possibly sacrifice the way that this 72-year-old Ramon Jimenez did or the way that my friend in California did or the way that Paul did? What can spur you on to be willing to do that? 
Listen again to our text in verse 23. Paul says it right up front in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. It's for the sake of the gospel. What does that mean? I think it means what pushed Paul forward in the days, and he had them for sure. We know he had the days where he was like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is not lucrative. This is not paying well. I'm tired. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. What pushes you forward to sacrifice for others? What pushed him forward was focusing on what Jesus had sacrificed for him. The gospel. And the same is true for you. It's only when you see that because Jesus did it all for you, that you just might find yourself having compassion enough to gladly sacrifice your hard-earned money for the sake of others. The only way you'll ever be able to sacrifice your preferences is by remembering that Christ gave up all the comforts of his heavenly home that you might be one. When he came... He was said to have, quote, nowhere to lay his head. That's what was true about God when he came in the flesh. He did not ride in caravans with great pomp and circumstance, but rather on a donkey. The crown he wore was not of gold, but of thorns. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus endured the shame of the cross that you might be his treasure. He was spat on, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was mocked, all so that you could be declared forgiven sons and daughters of God the Father, the King of all things. You see, it's really easy when hearing a message like this about our need to sacrifice for the sake of others and for the sake of getting the gospel out there, Uh, to think about all the ways you haven't done enough, right? I mean, it's really, uh, I guess I can do more. I guess, you know, I haven't haven't gone and stood out in the corner and yelled at people. I mean, (laughs) you know, you can think of any number of ways. You don't, and that's, it's fair enough. But also remember this, because you won't, this is the, this is so, so, so vitally important. You need to remember this. In spite of you're not sacrificing enough, the good news is for you, Jesus has sacrificed enough to have you. And so whenever you start getting bogged down by what you haven't done, remember what he has done and take hope. Because when you take hope in that, then it just might be that you find yourself going, what can I do for the sake of others that I might save some? Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, I thank you that Jesus goes the distance all the way for us to be saved, sacrifices everything. And then in turn, your followers throughout history seek to do the same. Why? That some might be saved. Father, I pray that you would give us the perseverance and the endurance to do that when the days come and we really don't want to. And when those days come and we don't, and we end up just kind of giving in to whatever temptations may be there, help us again remember that Jesus paid it all. 
and inspire us again by your Spirit's presence and power to serve again. Because our neighbors need us. You've placed us in their lives for a purpose. Help us, Father, seek that purpose, we ask in Jesus' name.